Hello. Welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversations, a weekly podcast bridging climate change communication gaps in Africa. My name is Sophie Mbogwa. Today on Building Momentum to COP26, we start the series by contextualizing current climate change negotiations by looking back to where it originated and how it has evolved. To walk us through this journey, I'm joined by a climate change policy and governance expert, James Welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is James Morombez, and uh, I am uh, uh, a climate policy and governance expert. I've been uh, engaged with the climate policy process more or less uh, since uh, 1992 when the UNFCCC uh, uh, was uh, uh, inaugurated at uh, the uh, Rio Earth Summit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking in my personal capacity, although I also have other official sort of capacities here. Right. Uh, but in that sense, uh, let me say uh, just uh, firstly sort of to retrace our steps uh, to where we all started with the climate uh, negotiations uh, journey. Uh, concerns with the climate change actually go back to the uh, quite a long way although the scientific sort of analysis of the impacts of uh, carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere on the climate system uh, really began to influence policy, uh, firstly with the reactions from uh, the World Met organizations, uh, as well as uh, the uh, United Nations uh, uh, Environment uh, Program, mm-hmm. uh, which resulted in uh, the creation of the inter- intergovernmental panel on uh, climate change. Uh, at the same time, uh, there were also concerns with um, uh, what was happening with uh, environmental change, in particular uh, with the biodiversity uh, loss, uh, which resulted in uh, the commissioning by the United Nations of a report which was produced uh, by uh, the former Norwegian uh, Prime Minister, uh, Gro uh, Halem. I think the report was titled Our Common Future, right? Yeah. Um, so the impact of uh, that report, Our Common Future, and the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change collectively led to the convening of the first World Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in uh, 1992, so-called uh, the Rio Earth Summit. So the Grow Harlem Brantlett report uh, was launched at the 92 summit, uh, which ultimately resulted in the creation of uh, three United Nations conventions to respond to uh, global environmental change and climate uh, change. Uh, These were firstly the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, Secondly, uh, the United Nations Convention on Desertification. And uh, thirdly, uh, the Convention on Biological Diversity. Those three, the Convention on Biological Diversity and on uh, Desertification, were actually binding from the outset in the sense that uh, the parties to those conventions agreed that they were uh, prepared to take immediate action to try to start to respond uh, to the um, uh, impacts uh, of human activity on environment, uh, including uh, the spread of uh, desertification. So this saw, for instance, the creation of uh, the CBD Secretariat, but also the United Nations Environment Program. Mm. On uh, climate change, uh, although the science was by that time already compelling, 
the political agreement on what to do about climate change was uh, much more difficult to achieve. Uh, so what we had was a framework convention on climate change, a framework in the sense that the framework was created to guide further negotiations. Mm -hmm. So uh, national governments became parties to the framework convention, but it did not have any binding agreements, uh, treaties or actions, uh, except that the nations then started working towards creating um, a framework uh, mechanism which would allow for binding uh, undertakings, including actions uh, to limit human impact on the climate uh, system. So this ultimately resulted in the finalization of the Kyoto Protocol, uh, which came into force in 2009. It was agreed in 2007, came into force in 2009. The Kyoto Protocol was the first binding climate treaty. Uh, and you know, the Kyoto Protocol created two mechanisms. Uh, the um, Clean Development Mechanism, UN-RED, and the Joint Implementation Provision. But principally, uh, Kyoto identified uh, two sets of criteria for participation. Uh, the first was that uh, it divided countries uh, or parties uh, into Annex 1 and Annex 2, or non-Annex 1 parties. Annex 1 parties in terms of the UNFCCC convention were those parties which had contributed more uh, greenhouse gas uh, to the um, historical concentrations of emissions in the atmosphere, while Annex 2 or non-Annex parties were those that were less responsible, but that were also less capable of responding to the impacts of already occurring uh, climate change. So Kyoto put in place mechanisms by which Annex 1 countries were to firstly limit their emissions and secondly uh, contribute to the efforts of non-Annex parties to adapt to climate change. It created um, carbon credits uh, as one way of uh, trading in carbon in order for member states to be able to uh, manage their own carbon emissions. So carbon emitting countries were given limits, right? how much carbon they could actually emit into the atmosphere. Uh, but when they reached those uh, limits, they also had the mechanisms through the Kyoto Protocol to trade uh, in carbon credits with other countries that were not emitting to their limit as it were. And then, of course, uh, the benefits from carbon trading, but also from other uh, mechanisms were also made available to, for instance, the Global Adaptation Fund and other climate funds that were designed to support climate adaptation in um, non-annex countries. Mm. So implementation of uh, Kyoto started in uh, 2009 and for an initial uh, five-year period. So the 2007 for an initial uh, five-year uh, period. So Kyoto was effectively phase one implemented until 20. Uh, 12. Mm -hmm. uh, during this period, you had the operation of these different mechanisms. The clean development mechanism, which was a carbon trading mechanism. The red plus a mechanism, which was a carbon sequestration based carbon trading mechanism. Uh, and the joint implementation, which created um, mechanisms by which different member states could actually jointly implement their climate uh, actions. Mm -hmm. Uh, when uh, Kyoto came to an end uh, in 2012, 
there was no immediate agreement on how to proceed into a follow-up treaty uh, mm -hmm. for the principal reason that between 20, 2007 and 2012, it became clear that uh, developing nations or some developing nations were beginning to emit uh, more carbon dioxide, more greenhouse gases than Annex 1 parties to the convention. So this was a recognition of the first rate of growth of uh, economies such as Brazil, China, India, Russia, uh, but also the growth of those economies was also based uh, on increased consumption of hydrocarbons, coal, uh, diesel, and also increased trade, uh, which meant that they were also contributing more to uh, uh, aviation and shipping uh, and transportation uh, emissions generally. Mm -hmm. So this created a context where you could no longer sustain the division between annex and non-annex parties because of the growing emissions from some non-annex parties. And so there was an increased desire to ensure that all parties to the convention contributed uh, in terms of uh, climate actions to the achievement uh, of the objectives of the convention, which were still to limit uh, dangerous interference with, with the global climate system. So from 2012 until 2015, you had a process of negotiation within uh, the context of the UNFCCC to design a post-Kyoto uh, climate governance framework. And the result of these negotiations was the Paris Agreement, which was uh, reached in 2015 at COP21, whose intention uh, and design was to be inclusive so that all parties would contribute um, climate actions towards the global effort. Uh, and that uh, mechanisms would also be put in place through the Paris Agreement uh, for those contributions to be equitable. That is to reflect uh, the individual capacities and circumstances of different countries, uh, and also to make provision for uh, uh, the uh, creation of uh, global funds to support enhanced climate action. Mm -hmm. uh, and also to operationalize commitment of mobilizing $100 billion a year, which was made first in uh, Copenhagen. So the agreement in Paris was secondly to reconfirm the, that developed countries would mobilize $100 billion a year by 2020 to support climate actions in developing countries. Secondly, that all countries would, by 2020, we have submitted nationally determined contributions which are the actions that each individual party to the convention would put in place to contribute towards mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, but also to adapting to uh, climate change. So that was for, for the five years between 2015 and 2020, parties to the Paris Agreement would start working on finalizing their NDCs, mobilizing the resources and ensuring that the Paris Agreement was in fact ready for implementation in 2020. Um, so this is very a very sort of a broad overview of where we came from and why we have transitioned from Kyoto to uh, the Paris Agreement and wh where we are at uh, right now. So COP26 is effectively the COP that was supposed to take place in 2020. Yeah. It is very significant in the sense that it is that COP which is going to firstly uh, bring together a comprehensive review of uh, the uh, all of the NDCs of all of the parties together. Yeah. But it's also the corporate which parties 
countries are expected to have updated uh, their uh, nationally determined contributions to reflect uh, the required effort or ambition to use the language of the Paris Agreement. Ambition to keep us within uh, two degrees uh, warming and if possible to achieve 1.5 degrees warming. Secondly, it is also the COP that is going to confirm whether the $100 billion a year can be mobilized and distributed equitably and transparently uh, and fairly uh, to uh, all of uh, the different uh, needs of uh, the members and parties to the agreement. Mm. Uh, thirdly, it is also the COP that is designed to put in place the rules of engagement, so to speak. Uh, the rules to guide the implementation of the Paris Agreement. These were supposed to have been agreed already uh, at COP24, then COP25, uh, but this did not happen because there were still some outstanding issues to be resolved. There is no guarantee that these are going to be resolved in uh, COP26, although a lot of progress has been made uh, towards that uh, objective, although there are still a few issues to be uh, negotiated uh, in the text. So uh, this is a very crucial COP uh, that we are coming to in terms of operationalizing the agreement. Uh, in terms of uh, the NDCs, uh, we know from evaluations that have been undertaken by uh, UNEP, for instance, uh, or the Global Adaptation Movement, uh, that we are still far off the two degrees target. Mm -hmm. In fact, the aggregated impact of all of the NDCs is putting us on a very optimistically on a path to uh, 2.7, almost three degrees uh, warming. That is in the most optimistic uh, scenario uh, and possibly uh, more than three degrees warming in the less optimistic uh, scenarios. Mm. So COP26 is going to be very significant in the sense that it is going to find mechanisms uh, of ensuring that we can get the NDCs back uh, to put us back on track uh, for achieving two degrees uh, and hopefully to work towards uh, 1.5 degrees. And then thirdly, uh, COP26 is very important in the sense that uh, beyond just mobilizing the $100 billion a year uh, from public and private funds, it is also uh, going to finalize the mechanisms uh, or the, the mechanisms for operationalizing Article 6 of the agreement, which is about how, for instance, resources are going to be mobilized from market and non-market uh, sources. Mm -hmm. So for those three reasons, the, the COP26 is really, really a significant uh, COP. Absolutely. No, right. Go ahead. Now, an additional concern for us uh, as Africa is that uh, uh, since 2019, the World Met Organization and other uh, UN agencies, including the UN Economic Commission for Africa, they've been publishing uh, the State of Climate Change uh, in Africa uh, report, which actually is focused on what is happening uh, as a result of climate change in Africa itself. The 2020 uh, report actually concludes that uh, the because there are in fact uh, regional variations in warming, Africa is warming at a faster rate and higher uh, than uh, all of the other regions. And by 2020, uh, the WMO report concludes that Africa had warmed by about 1.8 degrees yeah. Celsius, while the rest of the global system had warmed by about 0 0.8 to 1 degree or 1.2 degrees Celsius. The report also concludes that the possibility of 
the weather system in Africa warming uh, by more than 1.5 degrees in any one year is significantly higher than elsewhere in the world. So we are faced in a with a situation where the continent is going to COP26 knowing that we have warmed already more than all the other uh, continents, but also that we have probably exceeded the 1.5 degrees uh, uh, that the Paris Agreement is aiming for. And therefore, for Africa, it is going to be significantly important to ensure that the global climate ambition is increased and increased immediately to ensure that we do not in fact endanger the climate system further, which would put us on a path that would exceed two degrees warming. Mm. Because we know uh, that uh, at 1.5, 1.8 degrees warming, the impacts on Africa have been devastating already mm. in terms of uh, extreme uh, weather events. So we have extreme flooding, extreme droughts across the continent. We have uh, temperature extremes, and all of those are impacting our economies in very profound ways. Mm. And so it is very urgent for Africa that COP26 be successful in terms of not just mobilizing uh, resources, but also in ensuring that the ambition of the NDC is, is increased and increased immediately. So that is the broad overview of where we are, how we got there, and why it's important for a successful COP26. Mm, thank you so much, James. Um, I'm just uh, listening to you speak, and a um, um, couple of questions actually threw in uh, my mind. And one of the things that we know um, currently, Africa has actually warmed by 1.8 degrees already beyond um, what the Paris Agreement aimed to achieve. But I'm looking back at the Kyoto Protocol, and um, already the Paris Agreement kind of, um, you explained very well in terms of what happened in some of the developing countries which were in Annex 2, um, under the Kyoto Protocol already were beginning to actually develop and stuff like that and also use other fossil fuels that um, are, um, contribute more to emissions. But I'm looking mm -hmm. at the majority of African countries and apart from South Africa and different and a few other countries, we have a lot of African countries that actually are um, in, in the UN system, you'll find them under the least developed countries. And when, yeah. when when I look at what the Paris Agreement has, um, the moving forward is that NDCs um, does it have everybody like put everybody in terms of the differentiation that was actually there between the Kyoto Protocol and, and the Paris Agreement. Now we all every country needs to submit to the UNFCCC their plan in terms of this is how we are going to actually go carbon neutral, carbon zero. I mean net zero by 2030 or by 2050. But then when you go back to the Kyoto Protocol and the convention itself, these, um, it was very, very specific and uh, in terms of the common uh, responsibilities that Annex 1 and Annex 2 countries had. And it was very clear there was the term common but differentiated responsibilities and there was specific what um, the responsibilities that developed countries had, they were responsible in terms of the historical responsibility um, contribution to what the warming that we've had. Does it mean when you look, already Africa has warmed, but African continent itself, South Africa included, um, we contribute less than 4% of the global emissions. Um, and and uh, with, with consideration that we are the continent that uh, will be much developing in the future, and so of course we need to develop in a, in, in a low carbon uh, way, but then do you find that we, does, does NDCs put us all share that responsibility of um, emissions um, reduction? Uh, does it ignore or what exactly is your take in terms of 
um, the historical responsibilities that developed countries had and still have in terms of emissions. And the fact that now we have to all of us commit in terms of even the smallest of countries in Africa, small island states say, um, we are going to go, this is, this is how much we're going to reduce our emissions despite the historical responsibilities. Yeah, very, very important questions there. Um, firstly, you are absolutely right. Um, Africa contributes uh, less than 4% of our global emissions currently. And historically, uh, it has actually been much, much less. Uh, and you're also correct that uh, of the 4%, uh, probably more than 50% comes from a very few countries, uh, South Africa, Egypt, uh, to some extent in Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, so the bulk of uh, the rest of uh, the African continent, we have uh, net emissions of less than 1%. So for instance, uh, in my country, Zimbabwe, I think the emissions uh, about 0.04% or something like that. Mm -hmm. Possibly um, many African countries are in fact net positive already in the sense that they absorb more carbon than they emit. So you give countries like the countries in the Congo Basin uh, or other sort of forested countries around uh, Gabon, uh, the equatorial Guinea, uh, Guinean forest system extending through uh, Cameroon, uh, Liberia, uh, into parts of Cote d'Ivoire and so on. Mm -hmm. So in these places, you could actually, I think, uh, see that uh, there is significantly more carbon sequestration than there is uh, carbon uh, emissions. Uh, now, so that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that Africa is 17% of the global population. Mm -hmm. So if you have 17% of the global population emitting less than uh, 3%, less than 4% of global emissions, it already means that there is an inequitable distribution in terms of uh, uh, what has actually happened uh, to carbon concentrations in the atmosphere. And we also know that the bulk of the emissions uh, from energy, uh, energy for uh, production, uh, industrial production, energy for heating, energy for transportation, and so on. So you could say that uh, uh, development uh, has been driven largely by the consumption of fossil fuels, so that those countries which have consumed more fossil fuels, they've also been able to develop more and faster than those countries which have consumed uh, less fossil fuels. So you're absolutely correct on those counts. Now you bring into uh, focus uh, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities in accordance with the national uh, and, uh, capabilities. This is a principle, a core principle of uh, the UNFCCC, the convention. Uh, it is also a core principle of the Kyoto Protocol, and it was the basis on which, in fact, uh, the Kyoto Protocol divided countries into annex and non-annex. However, that principle is not, in fact, the principle which guides the NDCs, although it is still recognized in the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. The Paris Agreement mechanisms are not based on the principle of CBDR. So uh, herein lies the problem. Uh, where all countries are expected to contribute equally uh, to climate actions, although still uh, recognizing their own national circumstances uh, and responsibilities. So a lot of the NDCs, of, and you are correct to say that uh, uh, the bulk of African countries, I think 34, 32 or 34 of the least developed countries are in Africa. Mm -hmm. 
uh, which by the way also means that Africa has not developed much because it has not used its carbon resources or anyone else's carbon resources mm. for that matter. Mm. So now the question uh, uh, is that a lot of the NDCs of African countries are dependent for their implementation on the availability of resources, conditional resources, that is resources from other uh, parties to the convention. Uh, so that's the one characteristic. A second characteristic of African NDCs is that a lot of them are focused on adaptation rather than on mitigation, because there's very little to mitigate. Although, in fact, you're also correct that African countries are looking at avoiding carbon emissions in their development trajectory. So African countries are looking to contribute towards global climate action by putting in place NDCs, but we cannot implement those NDCs unless resources are made available. Uh, secondly, African countries are also looking to ensure that their climate actions are focused principally on assisting them to adapt to already occurring impacts of climate change. And thirdly, uh, their climate actions are designed in ways that would allow them to embark on low emissions development trajectories. There are many uh, issues associated with uh, all of those three concerns that you, you raised. Uh, but I think uh, these concerns are summarized or rather are contained, contextualized in an ongoing debate that is focusing on what would constitute a just transition for yeah. Africa. Okay. What exactly would be climate justice for Africa? Answering the question that we have not really been responsible for this problem. However, we cannot um, compound the problem by adding uh, unreasonably uh, to emissions, to greenhouse gas emissions, while at the same time achieving our development objectives. Now, my understanding of where the just transition uh, discussion is going is that uh, I think uh, the, the dominant opinion is that Africa has a right to develop. Sure. The continent is not going to be able to meet any of its sustainable development goals if it does not resolve, first and foremost, the energy crisis. So more than 50% of our population has no access to energy. Uh, and the continent needs to industrialize and so on. All of this requires that we increase our consumption of energy. And there are two pathways towards this. The one is you'd expect that, uh, of course, the most green way would be for us to uh, consume uh, renewable energy, of which the continent is very well endowed with sun, uh, with wind, in some instances uh, with the geothermal and so on, and also with the hydro. Uh, the second is uh, uh, we can, in fact, actually use some of the carbon uh, resources that are underutilized and that are still being discovered on the continent. Mm. So we have many discoveries of hydrocarbon uh, deposits, oil and gas, but also coal. Uh, so this is a very complex, uh, how do you resolve uh, between the two? And I think uh, the, 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 the African position is that Africa could actually negotiate for space to use particularly its natural gas uh, deposits. Mm. And the evidence exists to show that if the continent fully exploited existing natural gas deposits, this would increase its contribution to greenhouse gas concentrations by only 0.6%. 0.6% mm. is probably uh, insignificant given that the continent already contributes only 4%. Uh, that would mean increasing the contribution to 4.6%, still under 5% of our uh, global emissions. So if the continent were allowed to increase 
its emissions and peak say by uh, by 2050 or thereabouts uh, at 0.6% increase and then start to decline as uh, green and renewable technologies become more viable. This would not have any significant detrimental impacts on the global climate system. But however, this would need to happen in such a way at a time when the high emitting countries are also significantly reducing their own emissions mm. in order to not only compensate for that 0.6% uh, increase in Africa, but also to ensure that the concentrations in the atmosphere are not compounded uh, by their continuing uh, actions. Mm. For us, therefore, climate justice means firstly development, that the climate system should not in fact be an impediment to the development of the continent. It already is becoming an impediment to the development of the continent in terms of the course of adaptation that the continent is, adapt is, is carrying, in terms of the impacts of climate uh, change on the continent's ecosystems, livelihoods, infrastructure, and so on. The continent did not cause this. So we want the rest of the world to pay or to contribute towards assisting the continent to adapt to climate change, ensuring that climate impacts are not a hindrance to our developmental trajectory. And secondly, also that our own actions contribute to our ability to achieve our sustainable development goals, uh, but also that those uh, development actions do not significantly contribute to uh, carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions uh, mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. That is the climate justice debate in Africa. And that is also going to be part of our discussion at COP26. How does the continent achieve net zero in conjunction with all of the other continents? How, what kind of uh, settlement is to be reached and what kind of assistance is available to the continent? Absolutely. And James, we cannot adapt, we cannot mitigate, we cannot achieve uh, justice, basically. And even we cannot do anything without provision of funds. Finance is critical. It's actually what enables uh, capacities to be built. It's what enables technologies to be availed and stuff like that. And when you look at the convention, it was very clear what responsibilities Annex One countries had. And I'm wondering in terms of the mechanism by which under the Kyoto Protocol, how finance was actually provided and, and moving forward. And we've been having this whole issues of 100 billion uh, mobilizing and wondering in terms of probably the language and because we've been having push and pull in terms of provisions of this finance but it's very clear that developed countries pledge to mobilize 100 billion dollars annually by 2020 should we probably look into the wording and the language of, from mobilizing to probably provision moving forward yes yeah so uh you, you are correct as well i think this is part of uh, the debate now uh that mobilizing is quite misleading uh and uh, it does not take clearly identify what exactly should be done by who. Uh, secondly, also uh, that uh, mobilizing implies uh, defining uh, finance in very loose ways uh, than, for instance, in provisioning. So provisioning would actually entail agreeing on what exactly constitutes uh, climate finance, putting in place transparency mechanisms to ensure that climate finance is not counted uh, with other finance, for instance, with existing obligations uh, for 
development assistance obligations uh, for disaster relief and whatever else uh, obligations contained in different conventions and mechanisms. So provisioning, I think, uh, is, is what is being uh, proposed. But even that, I think, in my mind, uh, still means that we need to be a little bit more precise in terms of what exactly we are measuring. And that means that uh, perhaps we should also not be delinking uh, the discussions uh, of climate finance from the discussions of the Warsaw mechanism on uh, loss and damage. Yeah. So you have firstly provisioning that is made because it is in fact uh, the agreement in terms of the convention. But secondly, we also need to provide compensation uh, for loss and damage, particularly as you have significant improvements in attribution sites, right? So now we can attribute some events at least to the impacts of our climate change. And if we can do that, uh, we should also be able to attribute uh, the cost of those impacts to the emitters, and they should be able to uh, pay or compensate uh, countries that are experiencing impacts, in addition to also providing uh, climate uh, finance. So it's a very important debate. I don't know how it is going to pan out, but uh, uh, this is also going to be one of the discussions in terms of uh, the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Yeah, yeah. Then again, we are having, we're dealing with two crises here. We have the recovery in terms of the COVID-19. And of course, we have climate issues that have actually also been impacting. We've seen them impacting rich nations. We've seen Germany, we've seen different countries flooding and everything and, and stuff like that. And one of the beautiful things that I've actually seen is that COVID-19 has proved that there, there are resources when nations want to mobilize those resources and provide those resources, basically. But climate finance in general has not been really forthcoming. How do we move forward? Because then again, now we have NDCs. African nations say they need about $3 trillion to implement their NDCs because 80% of that is conditional. But then again, we have, you know, loss and damage every year. You look at Mozambique and, and, and the losses that we, we saw the country undergo and, and the amount of money that the country needed to actually rebuild. Look at what has been happening in uh, in South Africa in terms of water. Look at what's, what is actually happening also in Madagascar in terms of the drought. How do we mobilize finance in terms, at the moment, looking into the COVID-19 pandemic that is also affecting developed countries? probably much more than it's affecting the African countries. Yeah, so this is another major dynamic uh, which is going to um, uh, be contextualizing the COP26 discussions. Uh, what exactly is possible now in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic? So for Africa, uh, for the first time in what, three decades, African economies are uh, in recession. Uh, because of reduced economic activity uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, this also, uh, the impacts of the pandemic on developed economies reduces their ability to um, provision <laughs> or to mobilize the resources for uh, uh, climate uh, change. Mm. So what exactly can be done? Uh, we know that uh, African economies have already been uh, significantly impacted by climate change in different ways. Mm. African countries are now uh, contributing uh, between 3% uh, and 15% of their own GDP towards uh, climate adaptation, adapting to climate change events that are not even budgeted for. Now, this is a very, very big. And this is happening with resources that would have gone to other sectors of the economy, for instance, to investment in uh, social services, 
to investment in infrastructure and so on. So you have massive losses that are happening already. At the same time, you also need to contribute towards implementing uh, the NDCs, even if the proportion of the NDCs that is unconditional is small, 10 to 20% of the NDCs in most instances. So it's a real challenge, I think, uh, and uh, there are new mechanisms, uh, innovative mechanisms that uh, African countries are developing. Mm -hmm. We have uh, some small island states uh, led by Seychelles, which have been developing uh, blue and uh, green bonds, mm -hmm. uh, which have also been negotiating uh, debt swaps for climate change, mm -hmm. where uh, their national debt, their sovereign debt is, con is, is converted into a credit for climate actions. You also have countries like uh, Nigeria, which have also launched uh, green bonds, which are effectively a mechanism to try and mobilize private uh, finance, uh, private investment uh, in based solutions uh, in order to contribute towards uh, uh, mobilizing sufficient resources for uh, climate uh, actions. Mm. Uh, you also have uh, many countries that are putting in place uh, policy and legislative uh, instruments uh, to remove barriers to trade in uh, green technologies. Uh, so for instance, removing tariff and non-tariff barriers uh, to the movement of um, uh, photovoltaic cells, uh, panels for um, solar systems, uh, removing uh, customary, uh, I mean, customs uh, tariffs uh, on uh, new technologies that are more energy efficient, increasing investments in uh, hydro uh, power generation and so on. So there are quite a number of uh, innovations that are being promoted at a national level uh, through policy and legal uh, mechanisms. And I think also African countries are beginning to create spaces for innovation uh, by supporting um, uh, science uh, investments in the science uh, and technology uh, research uh, locally in order to, to accelerate uh, local contributions towards renewable uh, technologies. So a lot is happening. In my mind, I don't think that this is sufficient uh, given the scale of uh, the problem. Uh, so for instance, I think that while green and blue bonds are very innovative mechanisms. I really think that if African countries have demonstrated that they are willing uh, to renegotiate their debt, then uh, developed countries should also be willing uh, to cancel uh, the debts, particularly of the LDCs, in mm. return uh, for those countries investing in the cancelled debt, for instance, in renewable technologies. Yeah. Uh, on the trade frontier, I think that African countries should explore more the possibility of uh, using the continental free trade area to improve uh, intra-African trade in goods and services. And that would possibly include uh, trade in uh, natural gas uh, in order to ensure that we have a much faster energy transition on the continent, uh, but also in order to reduce dependence on external uh, resources for our own internal economic development. Mm -hmm. So a lot still needs to be done in terms of uh, innovation on the financial side uh, and also uh, in terms of renegotiating the long-term relationship uh, between the continent and uh, everyone else.
Mm. James, yeah. before I let you go, um, I think it would be nice to just, you know, give us a snippet of how Africa negotiates, because then again, when we go to COP26, how will Africa be negotiating? Does Africa negotiate as a country or does Africa negotiate individual countries or does Africa negotiate together as a block? And who funds African negotiating process? So, yeah, that's another uh, set of uh, complex questions that we have to, uh, I think, clarify as well. Mm. Um, there is a, there's quite a lot uh, that is uh, happening uh, in the negotiations. Uh, mm. The first is that we do in fact have an Africa group of negotiators, mm. uh, which actually brings together uh, UNFCCC focal point persons from all of the African member states uh, and further sort of divides them into uh, negotiating uh, streams. So you have focal point persons that are negotiating adaptation, some finance, others mitigation, gender, all of the different uh, negotiating uh, streams. So this is a group of technical negotiators which attempts to ensure a technical engagement with the negotiation process. However, Africa still ne- or, or, or member African countries negotiate and participate in the UNFCCC as individual sovereign states. There is no country that is voting uh, on behalf of the rest of the countries uh, and there is certainly no uh, uh, mechanism uh, that exists for that kind of a collective voice mm-hmm. at the technical level. Uh, at the political level, you, you have the Africa, the Committee of African Heads of State on Climate Change, CAOSC, uh, which is also um, advised by the African Ministerial Conference on Environment. Uh, so those two uh, together attempt to uh, bring some unity to the political uh, voice so that you actually have a common political negotiating position. And I think a significant progress has been made uh, towards ensuring uh, that level of commonality. But at the end of the day, we're still negotiating as individual countries and there are several levels of complexity uh, to those uh, relationships, which I think require some time to actually go through uh, the nuances. Suffice to say that uh, we have a different arrangement, for instance, in the European Union, uh, where the EU is a party uh, to the UNFCCC. And whichever country is chairing the EU uh, represents the European Union uh, in the climate negotiations as well. Mm. This is not to say that uh, Africa should follow uh, a similar uh, arrangement, uh, simply just to point out that uh, it is in fact possible to have uh, a different uh, arrangement that would uh, uh, ensure uh, a more uh, synchronized negotiating uh, position uh, between the African countries. Mm-hmm. So let me stop there. I think we really would need to schedule a whole session to discuss the African common positions, how the technical common positions are put together by the group of negotiators, but also uh, what are some of the gaps in the process and how can they be addressed? Yeah, exactly. Probably also discuss the funding mm-hmm. because it's also much mm-hmm. And funding as well, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Super. So those are important nuances, yeah. yeah. So um, we're going to have this series running throughout um, the October and November, and I'm, I'm sure uh, we will find some other time to actually discuss these nuances. Oh, thank you. Mm. Absolutely. But um, your final word, Jim? Well, there's still a lot to uh, discuss. COP26 is going to be very, very important, and I think that uh, everyone uh, needs to be fully informed of uh, what the issues are, and everyone needs to get the space to contribute towards the African positions. Uh, I think that the climate change is too important to be left to a small group of people. 
uh, certainly uh, the negotiations are highly technical and specialized, but climate change itself has got impacts that are very broad and generalized. Uh, and so we all need to have the access to the same information and be able to interpret that information uh, in order to inform uh, the outcomes of COP26. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, James, for finding time. Thank you very much. We'll talk again. All right, super. Thank you. That was James Murombetsi, a climate change policy and governance expert, talking to us on the history of climate change negotiations and the events that will shape discussions at COP26. Next week, we ask how the change from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement affected how Africa was recognized and what African negotiators are doing about it. Please make a date with me. But in the meantime, please send me your contributions to info at Africa Climate Conversations or through Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or leave us a comment on our website www.africaclimateconversations.com. We are on socials as Africa Climate Conversations. I hope to see you on Tuesday. For now, Kwaheri. My name is Sophie Mo.